Today's another beautiful edition of the Change Africa podcast where we meet Africa's top leaders, doers, thinkers who are at the helm of the African transformation and we have one inspirational individual with us today to discuss his journey to medicine and the change that he's been making in that field. Um, He's someone I really admire, someone who is one of the very few neurosurgeons in Ghana, Teddy Totimene. Uh, Teddy, this is the second time we've attempted to do the podcast. Thank you very much again for making time. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thank you yeah. for having me. Yeah, um, I imagine it is a busy day. I want to start the podcast on a very unconventional note. How was your work today? Um, was there any interesting things that you can tell our listeners? Well, today was not that very interesting. Um, I I started off teaching in the medical school um, and then I got to the hospital. It was raining badly. So I had a Zoom meeting. So I I sat in the car for the Zoom meeting. Then I did some paperwork. um, Then went for lunch, um, did a ward round, and went to another academic meeting um, and then came to do this interview. So it's been, you know, it's been one of those days, but also one of those days where you have to really find time to have lunch. Otherwise, you realize the day is gone and you haven't done much for yourself. Okay. Um Maybe not as exciting as other days, but we'll go into that. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I know your work can become exciting, but like exciting, I mean, um, pretty interesting things that the ordinary person doesn't even know exist. Um, so let's start from who you are now. You're a neurosurgeon. What does it mean to be a neurosurgeon? Well, so a neurosurgeon is a, a doctor who has specialized on dealing with problems that have to do um, that concern the brain and the spinal cord so anything that you know targets the the function of the brain or the spinal cord that is where we come in however you know there's always there's the neurologist then there's the neurosurgeon so um the the neurosurgeon comes in when there's something that can be taken out or something that can be added on to make the person's life better. Um, So we have to be able to operate to be functional. So the neurologist doesn't need to operate. So that's that's the main difference between us. So um, effectively, we deal with problems to do with the development of the brain and spinal cord in children and then also things to do with like brain tumors or um, um, development failures um, and then also infections. And then unfortunately in Ghana now, um, it's mainly, you know, um, strokes from bleeding in the brain. 
and then also road traffic accidents which cause um, brain injury. So it's a whole range of things that can affect, you know, the brain and the spinal cord and, and, and we coming to help with that. But you have a, spe- a specific specialty, that is, you are a pediatric um, neurosurgeon and you do some other yes. things as well. Yes, so I've always been interested in children. Um, I, I started, I, when I finished medical school, one of my first jobs was in a children's hospital. And that is when I realized that whatever I did, I'd want to do it for children. Um, and so when I finished training in neurosurgery, I, I got an opportunity to do my subspecialty in pediatric neurosurgery. And so in Ghana, you, you can't do just pediatrics because there are just 20 of us um, for 30 something million people. So we have to do a lot of general neurosurgery, but I love pediatrics. So whenever I get the chance, I do that. So I have quite a few pediatric clients um, who, 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 um, who, who I meet, who, who I see on a regular basis. Um, so that's my subspecialty. But in Ghana, every neurosurgeon has to do basically everything. Uh, and there are a lot of adult neurosurgeons who are also doing pediatrics so it's all good yeah you just hinted um at a big problem that i guess is a major problem across different fields in ghana especially in medicine however in the particular field of neurosurgery is even more disturbing that is the patient to doctor ratio there are 20 neurosurgeons for 30 million people in Ghana. How big is that problem? And what kind of stress does it put on the professionals like you? Well, the thing is, it's it's more of a general problem um, because Ghana also has maybe under 10,000 doctors for 30 something million people. So generally we are undersupplied with medical staff. Um, however, for neurosurgeons, it becomes more it becomes more serious because we have problems with you know the brain and spinal cord in our environment. Our country is a young country, so it means that people are very active uh, reproductively, uh, and so they're more likely to be babies who need our help and then they're also likely to be children who need our help and then unfortunately they're also young you know entrepreneurs men and women who are you know doing the daily hustle and in our environments where we don't have the you know good primary health care it means that people don't diagnose hypertension early enough and so then the first time a person knows that he or she has hypertension is when the person bleeds in the brain and that also needs a neurosurgeon then of course you know the hassle also means that you have a lot of people moving around in cars crowding the roads pedestrians with okadas you know running around and you know we don't have so many dual carriage roads so the likelihood of cars colliding is very high 
So unfortunately, we have, you know, brain injuries, we have spine injuries, and it's a lot of work for the, for the regular neurosurgeon. Now, the key is just, you know, doing the best we can whenever we can so that we can get, so that we don't get overwhelmed. It takes a mix of, you know, um, wisdom and grit and, you know, um, knowing when to call for help. And, and making sure we, you know, support each other. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's a combination of things to just stay relevant. Because the other thing, the, the other option is just to get overwhelmed and say you can't do anything. And that's also not an option. So it's, it's an interesting, very interesting area to cope in. You started your journey to neurosurgery um, in the University of Ghana Medical School. But before that, because I know a little of the backstory now, you had an interesting childhood that didn't seem to be toward any field of medicine, um, also a specialty like neurosurgery. Can you take us back to the beginning, um, to Achimoto School where you were and what your motivations were at that time as a kid? Well, so, you know, I, I went to Achimoto school because I dreamed of it, really. It, it was, you know, I read about it in a history book. Um, I read about this fantastic school that had been built by these three men, Agri, Fraser, and Gudgesberg. And I looked at the fact that, you know, everything important that had happened in Ghana to some extent had something to do with Achimoto school. So I, I, it's, it's something that, you know, basically I started dreaming about for a long time. So when I got the chance to finally be in Achimoto school, it was an experience. And, um, you know, Achimoto is one of those institutions that is built to provide an experience, um, to the students. And, and sometimes the, experience can overwhelm the reason for education, you know. So <laughs> I got into Achimata and I got into so many things that, you know, I was interested in, you know, in in music, in in the cadet corps, in literature, you know, in debating and things like that. And sometimes I just forgot the fact that I was a science student. So really, I came out of Achimata with poor grades um, in my A-levels. But again, it was Achimata which came to my um, rescue because two teachers from Achimata basically chaperoned me through doing my A-levels again. And, you know, they used six months to guide me to much, much better um, A-level results, and that's how I got into university. I mean, I started my love affair with neurosurgery in Achimoto School because um, I think I was in Form 1 when I collapsed in class, and the person I was taken to happened to be a neurosurgeon. For some reason, he must have made a very significant, you know, impression on me because 
throughout Achimoto school, it was a neurosurgery I was thinking about. Yeah, so by the time I got to medical school, yeah, I, I was, you know, and then, you know, one of those things that God sort of brings into our lives when we, it's almost like a conspiracy because a friend of mine bought me some books from um, Ben Carson and I started reading, you know, throughout medical school, every book that he wrote, I read it. Um, I had also some other pediatric neurosurgery, you know, people who, who made me just interested in it. So yeah, that's, that's how I basically started thinking about neurosurgery. But when I started my residency in surgery, I looked at the significant needs on our landscape as, as a country. And at one point, I almost considered not doing it and just doing pediatric general surgery. But then I spent a uh, part of my rotation with a neurosurgery department in Kolibutishan Hospital. And that's when I realized it was still possible to be impactful, even though there were significant needs in our environment. So ultimately, yeah, that's, that's how I ended up in neurosurgery. But that's um, a very sharp, what I say, accelerated um, progress you've made in the story. Because at the University of Ghana, too, you didn't just um, delve into medicine. You were also someone, as you said, in Achimoto, you did a, you were a multifaceted individual. So you did a lot of things. And one of the things that you did was that you were interested in the arts and in writing and in media. So tell us about that journey, too, and how you combined that at the University of Ghana, even at Chamoto. Yes, yeah, so I was exposed to reading very early, actually. There was, I, my primary school uh, is in Kolebu. Uh, the name of the school is New Hope School. And it, it's still there, actually. And for some reason, when I was in class three, the headmistress decided that every break time they would bring about a, a book a, a box of books for anybody to pick up and start reading and you know i don't know whether you remember those uh, maybe you're too young <laughs> remember those uh, you know um, bedtime stories books you know they would bring a box and so that's how i started reading um, and then i started writing a bit but I think it was in Achimoto school where, you know, my first teacher in English, she was called Mrs. Say. Um, she basically really taught me how to punctuate, how to, to write, how to be economic in using words. And, you know, I took literature a bit too seriously for a science student, you know. So <laughs> when I finished, <laughs> when I finished um, Achimoto school, I started writing stories for the newspapers. Um, so I was writing. So that's how I actually got to meet Nana Redamoa because we used to write um, short stories for the mirror. Um, and, and for the benefit so, of the listeners, who's Nana Redamoa? Nana Redamoa is, how do I put it? He's a doyen of pub publishing in Ghana at the moment when it comes to young writers. Um, I think 
when I look at, over the landscape for writing in Ghana over the last 20 years, um, he is one of those brave souls who has decided to step out of his comfort zone and build something that, you know, we can call a literary, you know, kingdom. Um, he, I mean, he will never admit it, but his impact on the publishing scene over the last, you know, 15 years has been significant. And um, I, I think if he goes the way he's going, he, he's going to, you know, really nurture some award-winning authors. So he is a scientist, um, he, but he, he, he's just stepped out. He's into writing and publishing full-time now. And I'm just looking forward to the day when, you know, he gets the his due, really. So, yeah, so because of that writing and, you know, once I got into um, university, I, I met one or two people who had also been writing short stories. And we, we got to, like, you know, talk um, and and sometimes talk about stories and things like that. And it was one of them who brought out the issue of um, doing a radio program. Um, and we, we, we went to see Alaji at Radio Universe. Um, we wrote up the concept. And that's Alaji how is the Open manager Air of Radio Universe. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And, and that is how the concept of Open Air Theatre started. So I think I must, I was my first year in. Um, in um that was my first year in university and we ran it for eight years yeah until i had to go and transfer and handed it over to my colleague um so uh, Ma Ma martin Ebleobe was my guest on the show and we ended up becoming good colleagues producing together and he was the one who took over open air theater when I left. And Martin eventually also became a professor, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So Martin did his PhD in physics. And in, 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 incidentally, when I, I came back from Israel, uh, Martin was now going to go to do his PhD. And he had moved from University of Ghana and started uh, um a, a, a program with City FM. So he had moved from open air theater, left it to somebody else and started a program with City FM for, for writers, the writers um, project, um, which is ongoing. So when he had to leave... By the way, open air PhD, theater is still ongoing at the University of Ghana. Too. Yes, yes, it is. It is. <laughs> it is. I, I should go sit in one of these days. <laughs> yeah, so when 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 Martin started Writer's Project, he had to go do his PhD. So he asked me whether I could sit in for him. So I think for about a year and a half, I sat in and presented Writer's Project. Um, and then once he came back, I handed back over to him and... Once in a while, I've been able to go back for a program, but I, I just, I just wish I could be more involved. Yeah, so that's that's the story with me and writing, and and it's the basis of that that has led to my, you know, writing, blogging on Facebook and LinkedIn, and uh, to my newest book, Aluta Insomnia.
which incidentally is published by Nanare Damoa. So you see the circle comes together. <laughs> yeah. Um, just on that reflection, if anyone follows you, and you should do that, follow Dr. Teddy um, on either um, Facebook or LinkedIn, you are a very reflective writer. So at the end of your day, at the theater or medical school or just in your car, you're always observing, you're a very keen observer and you are taking in the observations and you're making reflective conclusions around the state of the medical practice in Ghana, um, just opposed with that that you've seen because you're well-traveled um, and just general thoughts and opinions. How do you think that makes you different in the way that you practice as a surgeon? Well, it's interesting, you know, a lot of the people who I came to admire as doctors and surgeons were people who were very multi-talented, multifaceted. Um, you know, the the person who introduced me to the the point of being a pediatric neurosurgeon, Ben Carson, was somebody who, and is somebody who was a, a fantastic writer. Um, Charlie Epstein, who was another pediatric neurosurgeon, who I I read about, um, whose books I read very avidly, was somebody who could describe, you know, the 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 process of of a surgery such that for a 16 year old boy in secondary school after reading his book i could feel as if i could do the surgery myself so these were fantastic you know people who described things and um, two writers who come to mind wilbur smith um, and sebastian Falks. these were two writers who every book i found of them i read because they had an amazing ability to describe and take you where you know where they were as writers you know um yeah so i i think for me it was more about imitating them you know um and trying to bring a sense of the wonder that i felt in reading their work, you know, to to what I, I I do, and you know, Ghana is an interesting place. It's um, it's a I think it's a writer's paradise because everywhere you look is a story. And if if I had enough discipline to put down my thoughts, I would have produced like bestsellers by now, you know. But it's 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 an amazing environment that has been created there's such you know freedom to experience the world we have our failures we have our difficulties we have you know all but every time i've been able to walk in osu you know at midnight without feeling threatened or anything i have learned to be thankful for ghana so i think there's this freedom in Ghana that allows one to just look around and and pick up on experiences. Now, how does that affect my 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 work? I think it's very helpful when I'm describing you know things for 
for my clients um, talking about what we're going to do to treat a problem um, also empathizing you know with what they're feeling as they listen to me give you know bad news and things like that um, the whole expressive thing you know human beings are very multifaceted and I think writing reminds me um, not to look at the person who has come to my clinic as you know just uh, a medical problem but to look at the person as a as a full human being with you know all kinds of complexity that I can just see the tip of the iceberg um, as, as I sit opposite the person so I, I think you know these are some of the perspectives that writing takes me to when it comes to my work. So one of the things that you've written about um, quite a lot is that, and you mentioned it in the beginning of this conversation, there are some conditions that people have in Ghana that don't necessarily have to escalate into the purview of neurosurgery, but it does because of the underlining infrastructural um, lapses that we have, one of those being um, hemorrhoid strokes um, and um, um, heart disease, etc. And you have talked about a national strategy that is almost non-existent. Can you expand on some of these problems that exist, that are very pervasive, that can be solved but are not solved, and then directly lead to problems uh, that have to get specialists like you involved and just putting a lot more pressure on you than has to be on the individual because as you said you had only 20 of you and there are actual cases that need to um, have your attention but then you have to you know go and do a surgery for someone who has this escalated condition because of primary care that is non-existent how do we ref as as you reflect so beautifully on these things how do we look upon those experiences and learn from them? You know, it's it's a terrible thing for a neurosurgeon to operate on a 45-year-old who has bled into the brain. Because, you know, the, the, the brain is an electrical organ and anything that pours into it which is not, you know, belonging to that environment will completely destroy a lot of interconnections and, and make the person incapable of, you know, actualizing his or her um, potential. So the difficulty when it's a young person is that, you know, that person is going to have years ahead of him or her where you know, what he or she could have achieved is converted to years of being dependent on another person almost completely for everything. And it's a terrible thing to see. And the truth is that all a neurosurgeon can do is step in and help to save the life. But, you know, that's the simplest part of it. We come in and help to save the person and then we walk away 
and the person has to live the rest of the life that he or she has. And so for me, the fact that this can be present, prevented and it doesn't happen, it, it, it's, it's something that, you know, I, I'm sure you see keeps coming up in my reflections. But on the other hand, you know, we're a country whose, you know, medical programs and whose um, medical strategy or when it comes to dealing with our, you know, clinical problems, that strategy or that, that, that trend has always been set by people from, you know, the international organizations. WHO, USAID, um, and other organizations like that, because, you know, the third world has its medical problems framed in, you know, the guise of, it has to be infections, it has to be malaria, it has to be HIV, it has to be that, because that is the way, you know, the money is going, you know, so people uh, get a plan, they want to eradicate HIV, they want to eradicate malaria, they want to eradicate this and that, and that's where the money is going. And so the healthcare system has to, in order to get some money for itself, has to tailor its programs to fit those visions, right? And and during that time, if there are developing problems, they are easily missed because that's not where the money is going. So that's the difficulty um, with, with our environment as far as health is concerned. The other thing is the fact that as a people, you know, healthcare is not really the priority it should be. Now, the thing is, we're a young population. Ghana is, you know, 50% under 18, which means that people really don't think about illness, right? So as private individuals, we don't think about disease. And, you know, I always have this joke about the fact that, you know, um, when you look at private hospitals in Ghana, you won't see any private hospital that is bigger than two stories, you know. Um, I mean, you see hotels that are bigger than two stories. You see um, even, you know, uh, even funeral homes that, that are really big and elaborate and things like that. But you look at a private hospital, it's going to be, you know, a one-man kingdom. So generally, as a country, governmentally, we have not invested into health. And as, as, uh, as a people, privately, communally, we haven't invested into health. So putting all these things together, there's, there's no way we're going to have a significant strategy that will solve our health problems. And, and that is why we are where we are. In order for us to, to get somewhere, first of all, the government must take some leadership. And then secondly, the private sector must um, must follow uh, and and then must you know leapfrog the government because um, the government is limited in what it can do it has so many other needs but the private section uh, the private sector 
you know, has this opportunity to, to reach out to a market that, that wants better health care. I've seen it. People really want better health care. And um, this is a call to all the health entrepreneurs who might be out there. There's an opportunity, you know, to, to, to make some money in health in our environment. In one of your reflection pieces, you said something very interesting that you see roundtable discussions all over the world because you go for a lot of conferences, you contribute to listen. It increases the knowledge that you have for your practice. You get to network with people. But in those discussions, there are no politicization of medicine or the practice or the realities. It's just about solutions-oriented conversations around innovation and how we can advance healthcare. But then it seems like in our Ghanaian African healthcare systems, there is always the um, case that issues are politicized because we want to see which government is doing A or ticking these boxes. And even the intellectuals operate in silos. How do we create or harmonize a community? I know you're already doing something like that, but how do we make sure that we are harmonizing a community of healthcare experts who are coming together for the good of the practice and are making sure that they are the experts, are the ones who are leading the conversations and the politicians listen to them to implement public policy? I think ultimately the key problem of healthcare in Ghana is financial. It's all about the money. Um, and, um, and everywhere it's just the money, actually. Uh, I remember going for a malaria uh, conference um, when I was a, a young doctor in somewhere in the Volta region. And when we're sitting around the table talking about it, um, if I had to say something about, you know, treating in a certain way, it was immediately shut down. You know, if I had a, some of my younger colleagues who were in other hospitals at the same time would talk about something that did not fit a specific program or a specific protocol, it was immediately shut down. Why was it shut down? It was because the money was going towards a specific protocol and that money was able to basically stifle any originality of thought because ultimately the people who were leading the discussion needed to be paid and they needed to you know chaperone the conversation to fit the you know what the funders wanted right now i i sort of um, put it this meeting as a as a counterpoint to a round table i went for on health in boston just like a few months ago and you know there were a lot of important brains around the table, you know, and, you know, after three hours of just talking and discussing and, and exchanging views, it was interesting, but we had, we had agreed to put away the concept of healthcare as a, as, as a group, because we believed that what gives us the right to even think about people as ourselves? 
being responsible for caring for the health of others. It, it, it was more like it's, it's a bit, you know, um, how do I put it? I'm blocking on the word, but it's, it's a bit, it's a burden. It's, it's almost boastful to say that you are in an industry that cares for health, you know, and when health is such, health is such, you know, and it's, it's such a, it's, it's such an amazing concept, you know, it can be maintained. It's, it's something we have a right to. So why do I think I am a health provider, a health care provider? It's, it's, it's boastful. <laughs> and it was interesting to see how the freedom of expression amongst people could just, you know, manifest in a new way of looking at, uh, at things. And, and that's when, you know, you can see that, you know, when money is not limiting, the direction of thoughts um, on protocols are not limiting how we think. Um, there are opportunities to see things in a different light and, and look at problems in a completely different way that allows solutions to, to, to actually bring themselves forward that we never would have imagined. You know, now that round table has manifested into Zoom meetings that are coming up every other week and we're meeting together um, and, and talking about different approaches, managing risk in financing and all that. And I think ultimately the way forward is bringing the money into the healthcare sector in a way that makes people free to express themselves. Because the only reason why healthcare is politicized is because the money that will keep the technocrats in their jobs comes from the politicians. Now, if this pressure is taken away, then technocrats actually start functioning, you know, and, and then technocrats can, can actually do something about, you know, uh, different situations, you know. Um, the national health system for the national health service for the UK is, is, has been running for the last, it's just about 80 to 90 years that this service has been running. To think that just a hundred years ago, if you wanted to have a baby in the UK, you had to save, you know, so that you could be admitted in the hospital. But that's the situation. That's how it was. But, you know, they changed it and now, you know, I always bring up the point about Steve Hawkins and the fact that he never paid a cent for all the, you know, all the you know, medical innovation that allowed somebody who could only move his eyes to become a Nobel Prize winner. You know, that guy could... One of the most significant scientists of the 21st century. Yeah, exactly. And he could only move his eyes. You know, and yet he had a system around him which could use the movement of his eyes to write a book and not write a book, but write books that, you know, enabled him to win a Nobel Prize in physics. Now, that guy would have died in Ghana, period. 
there would be no support for him. And you can imagine the kind of mind power we lose as a people just because we don't have a healthcare system that can prevent strokes from happening. You know, so I, I, I think it's a challenge to the private sector. There's a lot of money to be made in healthcare, a lot of people to be saved. Um, it's no longer about altruism or philanthropy. It's, it's about, you know, nation building uh, and actualizing our potential as a people. There is a lot of funding right now going to technology investments. Why is it that some of those funding are not seeping their ways into building um, medical facilities of, you know, world-class medical facilities and um, investing into high-grade um, medical equipment? It, well, the thing is, the business case for medical investments has not been very good in our country. Um, the only way to minimize risk in, you know, health, medical entrepreneurship is collaboration. It's by people working together. Um, it's people sourcing, um, you know, their consumables together, people sourcing their, their work, their, their manpower together, people, you know, spreading, you know, the, 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 the risk amongst themselves so that they can get more capital at cheaper costs. And that's where the problem is. You look at our health landscape in Accra, just in Accra, and you look at, you know, the main hospitals that we call, you know, private hospitals, which have done well. And you go to each of them and it's one person at the helm and the kind of collaboration that you need to bring you know resources together and 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 build something significant just does not exist um and you know that that collaboration it doesn't happen by chance it, it happens because people put a lot of thoughts um and a lot of training um um into it and and that is where we are that is where we are not catching, you know, the 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 ball in, in in our environment. But I think it will come, you know. I think that just like what has happened in banking, and in telecommunications, and in in the media, you know, um, it, it's going to happen in healthcare. It's going to take some time, but I think it will happen because as these companies start coming to Ghana, Twitter, um, um, JP Morgan, all these big companies, you know, the blue chip companies start coming to Ghana, they are going to realize that there's a big, you know, um, hole where healthcare should be. And um, I think that's where things are going to turn around. Uh, ultimately, collaboration is the answer. I, I just do hope that we we find a way to collaborate. Otherwise, the people who collaborate will come <laughs> and and make all the money, and we'll we'll sit here and look at them. You know, um, if if those if those um, 
if those uh, sellers at along the Spintix Road, you know, had gotten together, and you know the flower pot area, the the bread bakers and all that had gotten together, and decided to build a mall for themselves, they would still be in business now, you know, and um, now those two shopping malls, the Palace and um, Accra Mall, just came in has wiped all the individual businesses away. But the truth is that if they had collaborated and decided that they'll build something for themselves, they could still have been in business. I, I think that's what is going to happen for 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 healthcare in Ghana if if we don't think about collaborating now. Uh, we're going to have a big hospital system in Ghana and Nyaho, Lista and all that, they will all, you know, dissipate because they just won't be able to survive. In one of your interesting reflections, you compared sport. You have done it a couple of times, but this particular one, you compared a Ghanaian um, Olympic medalist and the championship, the bravery, and the system that is needed to cultivate such more Olympic medalists and how that is commensurate with the practice and building of surgery in Ghana. And you said something before, and I'm bringing this up because you said that we've lost a lot of people, brilliant people, um, like possibly like um, the great um, Steve Hawking. But there are even people who have been trained as neurosurgeons but would not want to come to Ghana. Does our system repel people like that? And what could we do? I know as you said it's financial, but is there any other thing around that we could do to attract people or just bought down to the same finances? I think that, you know, one of the things that is so similar between sport and 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 surgery is a dependence on teamwork. And, you know, if somebody came from Barcelona, right, and came to join, you know, second D11 wise, no, okay, let me know. <laughs> Any of the local teams, maybe Kumasi has Santa Kotoko. But, but, no, no, let me not mention Okay, but any of the local Ghanaian teams. But came to join, yes, yes, join, came to join a, a team in Ghana, right? Now, Let's say that in Barcelona, to get a ball from one box to the other box takes about maybe 50 passes. They've been known to have just in the penalty box before the ball gets in to do 20 to 30 passes before the ball finally gets in. And each of these passes is a, a manicured, um, rehearsed, you know, pass. They they work on these things, you know, and each of those passes is planned, you know, and they've done it over and over again, right? Now, imagine such a person who works in that ecosystem and scores goals at the end of maybe 40 passes and it's been working for them. Imagine he comes to, you know, Ghana to join one of the teams where it's a midfielder who has to take the ball from 
you know, one D to, to the other. And actually it takes about maybe three or four passes and the ball has to be in the net. Now that person is just going to tire out and the system will spit him out. So the system does not need to repel him, you know, but the person will try to fit in using the model of multiple passes. And it just won't work because the two models are completely different. Um, and, and that's the situation here. You know, the, this country is one in which we've had, you know, understaffing of the healthcare situation for a long time. And we expect one doctor to be able to do multiple things just to survive or just to be impactful. Now, when we bring in somebody who has an ecosystem around him or her, that provides certain things so that all he has to do is just to give that small pass that converts that that you know that motion into a goal he will come into a system and try always to give that small pass but it will never be enough because you know the midfielder is not expecting a small pass he's expecting a big pass you know he's expecting the ball to travel a long way so that somebody can meet it. Whereas the Barcelona person is just expecting the ball to travel, you know, another five cent, um, five meters to another person, to another person. Yeah, so um, ultimately, you know, I, I think it would be, you know, people talk about, you know, people should come back from, you know, the US and come and help and things like that. I think it's immoral to expect people who have, you know, been in systems where things are designed around them for them to be very effective. You know, it's, it's immoral to expect such a person to come back home and replicate what the person is doing there. It won't happen. It won't happen. In the, on the other hand, it is very explicable why people would move from here to the US or here to the UK and immediately excel. Because immediately they, they've been working with a global view. We were working with a big picture view. And then they find that, oh, all they have to do is just fit in. And, you know, things will be done and they have to put in what they can. And they become very good very quickly. You know, so I think it's all good to expect them, expect people from here to go there and excel. But I, I, I don't think the reverse is, you know, it's reasonable because the two ecosystems are, are completely different. Um, should people come back? Yes, they should, but they should come back with ecosystems, you know, which can be transplanted here and can work, you know, so they should come back with ecosystems that can be incubated here, be seen to work, and then, you know, make them work. Um, but as for people leaving that ecosystem, coming back and on their own, trying to do something, 
it's just going to be like bringing you know a Barcelona midfielder to to play with you know um Colegono um Stars, Polygonal Stars, Sharp, Polygonal Sharks. Yeah, um, we're going to get into and, trouble. And, and that comes to improvis. <laughs> <laughs> that comes to the subject of improvisation because it means that you have to use the small tools to do the bigger things, and um, that happens a lot in your practice. Um, can you share with us how? You have had to improvise and you know in a way got away with it because there is not a lot of those facility structures here but how does that play into your role and do you feel like the average Ghanaian doctor going through all these problems if they had the opportunity to play in the bigger leagues or bigger ecosystems or they have the um the ecosystems brought to where they are they would flourish much more than perhaps other 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 people in other places because i think that um ungratefully some Ghanaians, some people who don't understand medicine are tempted to think that the kind of um medical education that is given to Ghanaians here are subpar so i just want to have your reflections mm -hmm. on that you know um when Nkrumah was planning the medical school he was planning with um, an American group and um, where UGMC is now was supposed to be where the medical school was um, was to be built and there was the you know Noguchi next door and there was um, public health so the plan was for it to be even then in an ecosystem of the university, a research establishment, you'd have the medical school, you'd have public health. So placing it there would make it sort of a center of publishing, a center of innovation. And that's how it's worked for, you know, other countries. Um, so when you have a Johns Hopkins, you know, a Johns Hopkins, the hospital would be next to public health, would be next to uh, the research center, you know, yeah, and one of the best medical how... schools, and still yeah, has one, one, one of the best, best medical I think schools, one of the best hospitals, and still has one of the best. I think one of the best hospitals exactly. too. It makes sense. That, that's how it's supposed to be, right? Yeah. Then you know, um, Nkrumah had problems with, you know, the American system, and and got into this whole fight, East and West thing. So he had to abrogate all those you know agreements so one day he calls three surgeons to the flagstaff house and says go to nigeria go to um ibadan um, and find out how they've been able to make um, their medical school work and come and start up a medical school so these people go to nigeria go and see how it works for two weeks and come back and when they come back what happens they borrow um, um, real estate from, you know, the school of um, public health and then start the medical school in that borrowed real estate. And, you know, the, the, the reason we have a medical school is the bravery 
of those, you know, initial people who started it. It, it was just the grit um, and the willingness to, you know, make things work. Now, the sad thing is that, you know, it could have been a medical school that could have produced, you know, um, 200, 300 people a year. That was the first plan. The, what was going to be in Legon had that, that capacity. What was put in Kolibu had the capacity to just produce 50 to 60 people a year for decades, right? Now, those people were trained very well. And the medical school continues to produce very well-trained doctors. However, the medical school continues to be under-supplied um, with money, under-financed, and it continues to be very dependent on brave souls who take it upon themselves to just, you know, get up every morning and commit themselves to training students. But that kind of commitment is cannot, cannot continue forever. And it cannot continue for every group of students. And that is where the quality starts suffering. However, because of our abundance of, you know, um, um, health conditions, the average doctor who comes out of medical school in Ghana, you know, puts beside another person who has come from outside, has had much more exposure to the process of disease, you know, and than somebody who has been trained in an environment in the UK, or, right? So, but the thing is, medicine has moved forward and we, we, we have not moved, you know, as much as we should. And so any medical person who goes outside the Ghana <laughs> will find out that, well, you know, there were certain things that were being um, stressed during medical school here that are no longer relevant to the world of medicine outside Ghana, right? However, they have all the foundation, all the theoretical foundation to quickly build, quickly learn, and quickly, you know, retool and become relevant very, very quickly in, in in the environments that, you know, have been set up outside. Now, unfortunately, the thing about working in Ghana is that you won't get what you need when you need, and you can't tell the patient that you're waiting, uh, and you have to do something. And will it work? You don't know. Uh, sometimes, like there was one of the stories where I told about a young a, a young girl who had fallen, you know, and had bled into the head. Now there's a there's an area in the brain called the ventricle, which is sort of like a tank that contains the water that goes around the brain. Now this 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 girl had bled into that tank, had bled into the ventricle, so blood was now mixing with the water and blocking the circular the blocking the circulation system for the water and this meant that the pressure in this girl's head was increasing very quickly and once it increases it will squeeze 
on her senses for breathing and she would die. Now the only way to get this pressure down was to put a tube into her head, into that tank. Now in other parts of the world where medicine has gone forward, when the person comes into the hospital, you have to um, do a CT scan that shows exactly where the blockage is. Then we have neural navigation, right, that enables one to plot a trajectory to those tanks so that you don't hit any blood vessel. You go straight along the trajectory that is in real time showing you where exactly the tanks are. And then the tank is put in and then you have a, a machine that measures the pressure um, as the, the tube goes into the tank. It measures the pressure and you now keep more, um, monitoring the pressure until the pressure comes to normal on the system, right? Then you close off the tank and keep checking the pressure. And then after two or three days, you decide this pressure has been the same. So you can take the tube out. Now, this girl comes into my uh, emergency room. I have the CT scan, right? But I don't have the neural navigation. I don't have the pressure monitoring system. I don't have the tube to put in. So at this point, I know the pressure in this person is going up. Am I going to stand there and say, well, if I was somewhere, this was, no. So what did I do? I had to go and find a tube that I could use. I had to get something that I could put in the tube to make it stiff. I had to get a, 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 a drill um, to make a hole in the, 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 the child's skull. And then blindly, I passed this tube into the tank as, as where I thought it should be. Well, it went into the tank. We don't have a way of measuring the pressure, but we kept it. And then we slowly look after this girl. And now she's walking around. Now, the thing is that my hospital will think that because that has happened once, it should happen again. What's the use of investing into neural navigation and investing into pressure monitoring devices when you can get good outcomes with just knowing where to put the tube? Now, this is the point where improvisation just causes a deterioration in our healthcare, you know, and sometimes it causes you to ask the next time somebody walks in like that, should you improvise again? If it means that your medical system is not going to invest into what you need to be, you know, successful all the time. And the truth is that, well, the next patient might come and I might try to do the same thing and end up somewhere that kills the patient. And that is when, you know, the people of Ghana will say, look at what that doctor is doing again. They're killing people in our hospitals, you know, that, that kind of thing. So it's, uh, as you can see, it's, it's, it's a, it's a difficult road to traverse. Um, what, what can we do? We just have to do the best with what we can and, and, and keep pushing, uh, and keep advocating. And, and and hopefully things will get better. I work with um, 
and with an American group which does spine surgeries here occasionally uh, as a mission. But what happens is that every time we do stuff together, they leave the things that we use. And because of that, we've been accumulating some equipment over the years, right? And, and these are some of the ways in which we are able to sort of bridge the gap in technological, you know, uh, capacity. But, you know, we can't keep doing this all the time. You know, we, we've got to get somewhere where some individuals in our society say, look, we're going to put $250 million down. We're going to build a center of excellence. We're not going to let the, the government run it. We will run it ourselves. I don't think we can have this conversation without talking about COVID. Um, just give me your general reflections on COVID. I know that um, the ICU probably was choked. Um, there were even medical professionals that were infected. There was obviously more um, pressure on staff. How did that whole scenario unfold? And how did you, um, as someone in the medical profession... COVID um, was very kind to Ghana, really. Um, there are a lot of theories going around about why that has happened. Um, I think as the gate, as the days go by, we will understand more and more. Uh, I I think that COVID was kind to Ghana because we have such a significant genetic diversity that every time COVID mutated, there was always that person with that unique um, DNA that prevented you know, the mutation from taking effect. And it was never able to get to those catastrophic levels where it killed people. Um, you know, the mortality for COVID in Ghana is equivalent to the daily mortality for, you know, a lot of countries in, in Europe. Um, so Ghana did nothing. I mean, COVID did nothing to us. And it had, I don't think it really, I don't think it had, it had much to do with the things that we did. I think, it, well, I, we had a response. Um, and I think we, we, we tend to pat our backs with that response. And I don't want to quarrel with anybody about that response. I know people, I have colleagues who really you know, dedicated themselves to, to, you know, pilot that response. And so I, I don't want to uh, debase what they have done in any way. But I, I think that we were just blessed not to be hit by COVID the way in which it hit other countries, you know, and I think that's generally the African story. We were just not as as badly hit as as other, you know, countries were hit. However, I me, mean, I got COVID, and I was, you know, down for three days, um, because of COVID, and 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 
I I went through, you know, the 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 significant body pain and the fevers and all that. And I was blessed at the time I got it that, you know, I had been vaccinated, you know, and um, I had also, you know, this was at the time when, you know, our ICUs and things were not clogged. So if I had gotten worse, I would have gotten some care. Thank God I didn't get worse. Um, but I would say that the commitment of, you know, the government to getting vaccines quickly um, has been admirable. The commitment of the system to building the infrastructure that helped us to get these vaccines in and to store them, you know, has been has been admirable. Um, and I I hope that it is because we had systems that were put in place and not fantastic individuals who just went out of their way to push for excellence. And I do hope that these systems that were established to give Ghana such a success story will be systems that will continue beyond, you know, this time. Um, but now when I hear about what has been spent and um, how we are struggling to, you know, um, take account of what, you know, has been invested into COVID and things like that, I, I become a little afraid. But, you know, in Ghana, we have to keep hoping. We have to keep hoping. We have to keep hoping that, you know, people are making the right decisions and um, keep hoping that when it's my turn, to make the right decisions, I, I will, you know, um, I will not, you know, yield to pressures and, and I will do my best. So as far as COVID is concerned for Ghana, I think we, we have been blessed with a great escape. <laughs> and uh, I'm just hoping that we've learned enough lessons that when the next pandemic comes, um, we will we will have a good response. So we talk about improvisation. Um, I'd like to, to look more forward into the kind of um, innovations, maybe local innovations, I don't know. Obviously you are the expert or any kind of innovation that um, the experts here have been able to cramp up or, you know, come up with that is working for our setting because we are resource constrained. When it comes to innovations, I, I the, the key thing that comes to mind is the malaria vaccine, you know, and what people like Professor Binka um, have been able to do for Ghana, you know, and, and these, again, are lone people who, who are pushing forward, pushing the envelope, you know, um, who are staying hungry, you know. And today I sat in a, in a Zoom meeting um, hosted by the rector for the Ghana College of Physicians and Surgeons, Professor Danu. And it was refreshing to hear him 
say some of the things that we've been talking about for years when it comes to training specialists in Ghana. Um, I think that if the things that he is pushing through are, um, are followed up and if, you know, he gets, you know, the, 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 the green light from government to, to, do, to, to, to put in those strategies that he is planning, I think there's going to be a sudden turnaround in the quality of healthcare in this country over the, over the next 50 years. Um, so I, I think of people like him, I think of people like Dinka, I think of people in Noguchi who immediately, you know, during COVID were able to use their training to get us to do, you know, these, you know, uh, PCR tests, which have now become so everywhere. Um, but the thing is, without Nogushi, we'd never have been able to identify PC and identify COVID when it came into the country. Um, but all those hardworking scientists who quietly are pushing forward uh, and and getting us, you know, in in uh, getting us forward in ways that really will never be known um, to a lot of a lot of Ghanaians. I just say, you know, I mean, way to go and and I just pray that God continues to grant them wisdom to to keep going. Um, yeah, I, I I believe with all my heart that this country has um, ways to go. Um, has things to achieve, um, and and I think that our doctors, with the right training, right exposure, right ecosystem, um, can can really contribute to this country becoming much much more successful than it ever has been. So part of the training is private education. Um, there are a few private medical schools, Accra Medical College, the Family um, and Health Medical um, School. Should we see a lot more of these things? And if there are other private institutions, like there's a Shirsi, there is across uh, academic city would the investment of such institutions make a drastic change in medical education and fill the gap you know exists? when i heard that ashesi was thinking about building a medical school i was so happy i don't know how true that is i i do hope it's true however you know as you listed all those institutions that uh, you mentioned the key thing that is striking is how each of them is headed by one person you know each of them is headed by you know one person or one group of people and and uh, yeah i i i get it about you know competitors and things like that but will 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 these one man one, you know, one person kingdoms, will they 
will they really push things forward? And the answer for me is no. And the kind of moving forward that we need requires much more injection of, you know, brain power and manpower than, you know, these small, um, these small steps. Should they continue doing what they're doing? Of course they should, because they're going to make an impact. And the thing about a bad situation is that any good thing can make an impact. It doesn't mean that the bad situation will turn around. Not, not really. But doesn't mean that some people will be saved who might not have been saved. Yes, of course. And I, I guess for each of these people, it's a good reason for these, you know, um, schools and universities and, and to continue. But it's also important that, you know, that big push happens. And it's only a matter Scary. of time. And like I said, when that big mall comes, all the small shops, you know, will collapse, you know, and, and that's what, and that's what, you Scary. know, that's what is lying in store. Yes, that's why it's lying in store. If these small shops don't think about collaborating, you know, think about sharing their students, think about, you know, I, I'm looking forward to it. Faculty. I'm a medical students from one private um, um, medical college can go to the other private medical college or they can share, you know, um, they can share Faculty. libraries, they can share faculties, they can share teachers, you know, instead of one going to teach at one place and going to teach at the other, they can make it such that they can do virtual education so that you know, they can share their resources, share their proceeds and things like that. But all that is, uh, it's a difficult road. You know, it's a difficult road. It needs time. You know, the the day I went to, you know, the Constitution Museum in, in, in Philadelphia, and I was just walking through the story of the making of the U.S., the day I found out that there was a time when um, they couldn't agree on one dollar <laughs> buying something in the south of the U.S. and that same dollar being used to buy the same thing in the north of the U.S. Then I understood it takes time for people to <laughs> collaborate, people to agree, you know. I mean, today we take it for granted, you know, if I see a dollar, I want to have it because I can use it First anywhere I go in the world. And but there was a time in the U.S. when, you know, one dollar in Mississippi was not respected in, you know, Wisconsin. Yeah. Let's talk about leadership. Um, you've been a part of the Heisenwald Fellowship and also you seem to be an admirer of Paul Farmer. Um, Obviously, take us through the journey to get into Heisenwar, but um, also your reflections on the personality that someone like Paul Farmer was, what he meant to the global 
healthcare. I'm sorry to use the word again. <laughs> that is the standard word. <laughs> the global, <laughs> the global healthcare community. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's good that I've infected you. Like I was infected in yes, by those yes, people. Yes, yes, yes. But it makes yeah, sense. That argument you, really you know, makes sense. Yes. Right. Right. Well, you know the. You know, Eisenhower was, he had achieved by the time he became president. You know, he was the one who led the D-Day landings and that, 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 that basically crushed Hitler, finally. He was the one who helped to bring the collaboration that established NATO. You know, he came back to the U.S. as a war hero and he won the presidential, you know, um, election by a landslide, you know. So when he became president, on his birthday, a group of his friends came to his office and they're like, what can we give to a person who has achieved so much, you know, and who has everything? So that's when they decided to put some money together and start up the Eisenhower Fellowship. So the Eisenhower Fellowship was supposed to be, you know, um, a, a, a journey which is given to specific individuals to go through the U.S. and through during that journey to, to learn the process of how, you know, conversations lead to collaboration and then consensus and then big things happen. You know, the same process that Eisenhower would go through, you know, those start those conversations and lead to, you know, consensus and then collaboration and make things happen like NATO, like Normandy. Um, the D-Day landing was the biggest ever landing of, you know, human resource army and, and, and infantry or navy on, on a particular uh, place. So that's how the Eisenhower Fellowships was started. And it was a completely American program. But however, the, the first African Eisenhower Fellow was actually a Ghanaian. Um, uh, and uh, he was working in DC at the time. Um, so fast forward, you know, 2016, um, Colin Powell, who was now the, the, the chairman for Eisenhower Fellows, decided that, no, this year something must happen for Africa. Or Africa all alone. So he started the African Regional Program for the Eisenhower Fellows. And that year they chose 25 people who had business, you know, proposals for for you know solving problems in in Africa, incidentally, <laughs> I submitted my business proposal um, for a neurocritical care um, system in the private sector in Ghana, and the way God goes about things, He has a sense of humor, but that is that that is the business proposal that won me the Eisenhower Fellowship. Um, and so I was in the U.S. for six weeks. I went to 
every important critical care um, center in the US. Um, went to 13 states, um, had um, discussions with all kinds of people from the head of you know neurosurgery and critical care in NIH um, to the head of the head of neurosurgery critical care in Walter Reed um, to to Harvard to Stanford yes it was an amazing experience um, and we're still a group of fellows who 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 collaborate in in different ways to make different things happen and that fellowship has continued to shape uh, you know my my plans for the future um yeah so that that is how i got into the eisenhower fellowships and this year we've interviewed um, um five fellows we this year was the global fellowship and so we had about 85 ghanaians um applying we whittled the number to five and we chose three um, Eisenhower Fellows who we have submitted to, you know, the World Eisenhower Fellows. Um, and maybe they might choose all three, maybe they might choose two. But it's, it's an exciting um, group of people. Um, and I, I am really privileged to be in that, in that group. Now, Paul Farmer, I, I got to know of him. I never met him, but I got to know of him just because of friends in Harvard. Um, and every time I was in the, you know, global neurosurgery community or global surgery community, his name came up. And one of my collaborators in healthcare business directly worked with him in Partners for Health. And um, he, he used to talk about him, he used to talk about the impact that he's had and the outpouring of grief in the Harvard community when he died. Um, and and um, there was a heartfelt tribute from one of his proteges from Rwanda, um, who was now a neurosurgeon. Um, it, it was just amazing that this person from the US could, you know, step into Haiti, step into Rwanda and, and, and make such a difference. Um, yeah, so that's how I ended up dedicating a poem to him. But I wish I knew him more. Um, but he was, he was, um, he, 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 he is confirmation to me of how much one person can do and how unlimited our potential really is as human beings. And um, he reminds me never to look down upon myself or what I could offer the world wherever I am. Yeah. Yeah, that is a beautiful tribute. Uh, last thing I want to talk about is your book, the book that you have now. Um, you launch a book. Tell us about the book and where people can get it. Definitely, people are listening. They may, I mean, if people read your reflections, they would definitely want to um, get the book. And also, you said that right. you could write. You could write a lot about um, your experience. You know, 
here's an idea. Why don't you get someone to compile all your writings? Because I feel like, um, because I follow your writings, right? I, and I write too. Right. I feel like you can, right. you can make some kind of memoir from all these experiences to be honest. Right. And let's be honest. There are not a lot of people who are almost always documenting their daily experiences and from such wide angled perspectives and interconnections mm. it will make a brilliant memoir around um the practice of medicine in africa mm. you know you should you should you should you should um you should google my name on amazon i have like i have i think i have like seven books on amazon now and these were all self-published uh, okay <laughs> these were all self-published books <laughs> These are all self-published books until uh, Nana Are published this one. I so have. This one, this one is Aluta Insomnia. Um, and uh, <laughs> Nana Are, and uh, Martin Eglogbe, who, who was my colleague from Open Air Theatre, he wrote a very, very kind um, foreword um, on it. Um, and then Nana Are wrote the blurb. And they were all very flattering, very, very kind, you know, words that were said. And um, I've read it. I think, you know, reading it as a book is a different experience, you know, because it takes me to different places because, you know, each of the essays, it's a, it's a, it's a collection of essays, very short essays, you know, um, and each of the essays has a time stamp and, and a place stamp. And it's interesting just looking at, you know, what dynamics the, the, the knowing where I wrote it suddenly brings to what has been written down. Uh, it's, it's, it's a collection of, you know, stories somewhere written whilst on a train, somewhere written whilst on a plane, somewhere written in a, there's, there's one that was really funny. Hallelujah fitting shop in Tesano, somewhere written whilst waiting for laundry, somewhere written whilst waiting in the consulting room. And and all those time stamps and place stamps are really faithful and accurate. So I would I would encourage, you know, have a look at it. It's called Aluta Insomnia. Um Book Nook. Um, is the is the is the place to get it. You just Google Book Nook, um, and Nana Redamoa has an amazing you know virtual store, and they can they can um, courier the book to you wherever you are in Accra. Actually, couriering can be free. I don't know whether he's still offering it, but you know just check it out. And he makes it he makes getting a book very very convenient. I, I so please find our book nook. It has so many other titles, but my title is Aluta Insomnia. Check it out. I know it's also in Videa, um, in Osu. Um, so so th that is where um it, you can find it physically. But I mean, just book nook it, um, and and it will get to you. And then, of course, on Amazon, yes, B-O-O-K-N-O-O-K, -O 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 yes. So if, if you Google Booknook, exactly. 
Thank you. Yeah, Booknook is B O O K. And then you know my 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 music is on iTunes too. So yeah, we'll put the link in the description so that if anybody wants it, they can get it. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, a, that's I was an, going to go on that next. Oh, please. Yeah. That's, that's you are doing hour. a lot of things. I mean, how many hours yes, do you yes, have in 24? Yes, yes. <laughs> that's, that's an uh, old album. Most productive hour, uh, person in the 24 hours. Because you yeah. have a wife and you have kids. I think you should enjoy it. <laughs> so, Teddy, thank you. Um, Daniel, Daniel, you didn't say anything. Do you have any few words to say to Teddy before you leave? <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> sorry for that but the conversation was amazing i was even here i was even making notes and everything i even had questions but the conversation flow was excellent and uh for me personally i really found it interesting when you spoke about the parts where um yeah how the money determines like the focus areas because i mean i work in a completely different field and quite close let me say intermittent between um it's for startups and innovation but between government and the private sector and you can really see how right. unfortunately the money drives a lot and even very smart people that are in, in in a certain position just keep up the apparatus because if in our case it came from let's say it comes from germany the money comes from germany it's decided top down right it comes here you now have one smart german guy then another smart Nigerian guide and another smart Ghanaian guy. And somehow no, none right. of them will ever go back and tell them that, hey, actually we should do A, B or C or something else. Right. And then before you know, they have right. a large apparatus focused just on that aspect that might not really be uh, crucial solution to the, yeah, to the problem, right. especially in an African perspective, but the apparatus grows bigger and bigger exactly. and bigger. And that's where the money is. So nobody speaks up and everybody like it puts you in right. a, like, kind of a mental cage without being all of a sudden. Because sometimes Protect I ask myself whether they truly believe what they are saying or they just can't, like whether they can't speak <laughs> any longer or they just, I mean, it's really <laughs> difficult to say. So it was really fascinating. So what happens with your career? Does it, do you, because like the way you're describing everything and you have like the the view of the entire industry is, is there, I mean, where should you be? Where can you have the most influence? Well, that's a very know, good question, Daniel. That's a very good question. You should have asked me. <laughs> you know, I've just, I've just started an, an office. I, I, you know, I started private practice actually last week um my first office so um and then i've got my first clients coming in next week um and i don't know what direction it's going to go um i i am in line to be the medical director for a cancer hospital a children's cancer hospital which has a timeline of about maybe three four years now that I brings together everything that I've learned over the, the years. But again, anyway, we'll congratulations. see how that comes out. Congratulations in advance. For now, I just, <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. For now, I just try and better my crafts every day. 
um, try and do the best I can, um, try and keep my blood pressure low because, you know, the frustration can get to one sometimes. But I, I think that neurosurgery and specialized surgery is a waste of time in the government sector. And I must find a way in which, you know, um, enough, you know, private capital is raised so that we can do something. Because yeah, I that, don't that, think that's it's what sustainable I was thinking about. in the I, government I, sector. I don't know. I don't know how, you know, like today, I was just thinking about, so Daniel, today, I, I was just like trying to review all the VC funding. Like this year, a lot of VC funds have been raised, like mm-hmm. almost half a, half a trillion of VC funds has already been raised, right? And we are like, what, only the second quarter? And so a lot of money is going to be pushed into technology. And you were talking, I was like, my God, healthcare is the most important thing in the world. How do, right. how do you, how, how does some of the money get into this space? Because... People would pay for it. People would pay for it. Yeah. But I mean, the people that where the money coming is coming from at the end of the day, they are quite, I mean, they are to an extent quite removed. So I think it's not the reality. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, From from the reality and even even geographically at the end of the day, they will follow the easiest path. I think it, as you said, it takes time. Once, there is more local entrepreneurs, more local investors that had one bigger success. And then maybe you have seen problems right. that touch them personally. They can now start to focus on Right. They can now say, yes. Yeah. And the truth is probably and it, it, we are also the ones who have the insights to solve those problems, to understand the complexities. Because as you right. described, it may be somebody who has done healthcare investment or medical entrepreneurship in another market, if he just invests, he might not, un- exactly. he might not understand how it works. Right. Right. Yeah, right. yeah I mean, but, but, but so, Teddy, it seems like you are specifically placed to be leading such institutions. So we just pray and hope that, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, because there are, there, I mean, then obviously I... I would think that a lot of doctors have good intentions, but yeah. Uh, oh, I don't know, but like, you have paid, you have paid, your, like you've shown that like, this is something I am doing and right. yeah, like the private funding needs to come from somewhere, you know, th- that's one of the reasons why I aspire right. to be a billionaire. Like I'm, I'm always, I'm always thinking about <laughs> ways where I can build something. No, I want to become a billionaire because see the, the way that you can help, right? Like today I was talking to the other Daniel, who's my very good friend, and we were just discussing taxation of wealth and around the world. And I'm, I'm not a big fan of like right. world tax, but yeah, I get it. Um, it's a little more politicized, but we you should find ways to tax business and all of that. But the thing is that yeah, when people should. make their money, you can't really tell them what to use their money for, right? So you just have to find people who True. really care about the problems, have the money, and then they would invest in it. So that has been my orientation. Like, what well, if I care about stuff? Okay, then let me make the money, and then I can say, okay, I'm putting hundred million to starting up a neurosurgical center in Ghana. Fine, true, because I true. care about it. True. Because if not, there's a guy who is two billion dollars rich in Dubai, and he cares about fine girls, and he would rather go to a party and spend ten million dollars. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can't do yeah. anything about it. You just can't. Right, I can't. Because, you know, the office that I have in Laboni, if I could get $2.5 million and put a theater there and, you know, 
spruce up the theater and bringing all the things that I need, I would leave UGMC and I would, I would get together with a group of people and just get cases done, you know, get cases done, get the traffic going and slowly, you know, we'll just raise the money. And before you realize we have a, you know, a hundred million dollar center, you know, so, but like you're saying, I guess the important thing is to position myself, you know, so that when these things fall into place, I will be there. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Teddy. This is my pleasure. My one pleasure. of the most um, insightful conversations. I know everybody who listens to this podcast in the field of healthcare would clearly empathize with the situation understand it even more have a better appreciation and if people are in government probably it will start conversations somewhere and lead to some better conclusions but this has been a wonderful insightful conversation we thank you very much for being on this podcast thank you isaac for having me and keep up the good work okay this has been the Change Africa podcast, and we've been with one of Ghana's very few neurosurgeons, renowned neurosurgeon. <laughs> and oh, please. Multi, <laughs> multifaceted individual. Yes. Um, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Mm-hmm.